as an industry made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. There's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Ron Curry, CEO of the IGEA. So join us as we explore his journey. Of course, Dev Diary is funded by an amazing group of people at patreon.com slash devdiarypodcast. They help grow the show, make it bigger, make it more successful, and they've got early access to this episode. Consider checking it out yourself, and if you can't do that, perhaps consider throwing the show a five-star review or equivalent on your podcast service of choice. Thanks a lot and enjoy the show. So today I'm joined by Ron. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yourself? Uh, great. It's great to have you on board. We were discussing just pre-show. We've, uh, I, and I guess there's been a little bit of behind the scenes as we've tried to work out. You've got a very busy calendar and there's, there's, you know, I think there's been times when you've been available that I haven't, vice versa. And it's, it's nice to finally align things, even albeit a Friday night. Um, it's nice to be able to align things and, and have a chat. So thanks for coming aboard. Yeah, no worries. Obviously, Friday night, neither of us have got a life. We're both available. Apparently, yeah. yeah. It's it's a glaring indictment on the both of us, but uh, more on that and then maybe some sort of subsequent debrief episode. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but it is, it is fantastic to have you aboard, and I'm, I'm keen to, to pick your brain. Go right ahead. And so this is Dev Diary, series where we talk to developers and those in the industry and pick their brains, discuss their journeys, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. And... I guess, I mean, the, there's so many incredible things that you've done as a part of the IGEA and, and several other components of your career so far that have involved games. But before we get to all of that, I I wanted to rewind to a point prior to your actually involvement in the industry and, and talk about a purely consumerist lens, I guess, on, on video games. Do you recall what some of the first games were that you ever played? Ah, oh, look, I, I, I remember as a kid, we got, I can't remember now whether it was an Atari, an Amiga or an Atari, and it had a yep. chess game on it. And my uncle came um, to visit from Queensland, and the, the machine was in my room, whatever it was, I can't remember. But I didn't sleep for the whole time my uncle was there because he would not stop playing it until he could beat oh. the machine. Right, so, I, thought, I thought it was going to be you going down the well, but right, the uncle, okay. No, 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 it was him. Um, it was him going down the well. Mine was um, the very first Pong. Oh, yeah, um, nice. My, my parents bought it when we had our old high 26-inch black and white television. Um, and, you know, just used to play that and had this shooter, this crazy just block go across the screen that used to shoot. And we just spend hours thinking technology would never get any better than this. And yet. And here we are. <laughs> and yet here we are decades on and, and so many things have changed. But how did things evolve for you from there in terms of, I guess, what was further introduced to you? Did you find yourself gravitating to any particular games, genres, franchises, platforms even? Yeah, look, I used to hang out with a mate and um, we'd love, we used to play a lot of Sierra games. Like, oh, yeah. You know, King's, King's Quest, Quest. The original King's Quest and Police Quest, Ledger Suit Larry, um, those sort of games. And used, used to just sit up for hours at night time and, uh, you know, waste a Friday night or a Saturday night uh, playing those sort of games together. Uh, Hardly a waste, but some classic Hardly titles there. They're, they're fantastic games. Um, and, I mean, I think there's something to be said for remasters and those sort of things these days and getting some of these older games that perhaps are, are known to very few these days. Yeah, Back true. in the limelight in some capacity. So Yeah, and um, they were great days. You know, great games are, I mean, way simpler, text-based, but, you know, just 
lots of fun and it's something you could do with a, a, a bunch of your mates all just hanging around i guess it was the first multiplayer yeah everyone's screaming at each other what to type <clears throat> next and the the amount of pressure you would feel under to then make that decision oh yeah with a million you different voices screaming you, it's... you lived and died by it yeah recipe for anxiety there for for kids of all and i guess adults of all ages at that particular stage um and so obviously your your life these days heavily involved in the in the video game scene in in a range of different capacities but i guess how did this enjoyment of games as a as a consumer Mm -hmm. eventually become what it is today so how how did you i mean was there this moment at all anything that you identified was like okay i i need to get involved in this somehow be it the big scale, the local scene, like, was there anything at all? Did just things fall into your lap? How did we get from you consumer to... Absolutely um, chance. Yeah, okay. So I, I was working I was working for a hardware company, Nuts and Bolts Hardware. Yep. In merchandising. And I, I wanted to try something new. So I went to work for a merchandising company. So we would go into Kmart and Target and Big W and, you know, put up working stock, with them. dress stock, put up point of sale displays. And one of my one of the clients I looked up to was called Aussie Soft. Yep. Now, yeah. So if you remember back back in the day, you know there was pretty much two companies in Australia that did computer games: um, Nintendo and Aussie Soft, and then Roadshow. Um, so Aussie Soft did. Uh, they were the first people who bought out um, the Master System. Yeah, so of course. I was going around the Kmart, merchandising the Master System, and um, the company I worked for went broke. So I, I rang around to all my clients, you know, there was uh, baked bean people and there was pantyhose people and there was mascara people. And then there you certainly these, weren't discriminating, that's for sure. Not and then there was these people who sold this thing called a master system and I just rang them and said, hey, you know, sorry, we've gone out of business. Just wanted to let you know, you know, I'm not quite sure. I'm happy to do it like a handover even though I haven't got a job. And they essentially said to me, well, what are you going to do for work? I said, oh, I don't know. Um, hadn't gotten that far yet. Hadn't got that far yet. It was it was like it was October thereabouts. You know, my wife was pregnant with the first baby, which was due in a month. Didn't have a job. Yeah, it's a scary and, time. Yeah, and they said to me, "Well, do you want to come and work for us? You know, over the Christmas period. You know, do you know anything about inventory?" And I'm like, "Oh, oh yeah, like totally. I know everything about inventory. I <laughs> didn't even know what the word meant." No. So I ended up at Aussie Soft as the inventory manager over the Christmas break. Um, and you bluff your way through right hey you bluff your way through it a little bit initially well enough that i was there for 10 years (laughs) so so it was purely by their generosity and just circumstance that i ended up working for a for a games distributor uh and then you know that ended up you know sega bought them so you know i worked through the through the mega drive days the 32x days the mega cd the dreamcast days um you know, Infograms bought them, you know, there, there was a whole bunch of changes. And I just, yeah, changing of hands quite a few times over that period. Yeah, and I, look, I, I left. I went to work for Hasbro Interactive and uh, I was there, headed up Asia Pacific for Hasbro. And then Infograms, who I'd left because they bought Aussie Soft, ended up buying Hasbro. So I was back again. Just, so. you couldn't get rid of them or they couldn't get rid of you, I whichever way you want to look at it. But it's just, yeah. there's this vicious cycle along the way. And, and obviously, yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's one of those interesting things that obviously Hasbro is, is well known for a range of different IP. And so there's different IP kind of in circulation. They're well established outside of the realms of video games. You, mm-hmm. You've worked in commercial directorial roles, there's managing directorial roles, all within under these, these umbrellas here. And um, I guess what sort of challenges that bring as someone who 
obviously had enjoyed video games, but had never necessarily expected to find themselves immersed in the the scene in a professional capacity. What was it like as you've then kind of stumbled into it, as you say, a little bit of luck and found your way there, but then a um, I guess being able to draw on that knowledge of the of the industry as a, as a consumer, but also apply it to a I guess a more business focused. Yeah, it's really, it's interesting when you can when you can take something you you love and have a passion for, and and you know you kind of grew up, you have this nostalgic connection with, and all of a sudden you're doing it for a living. Yep. Um, and it's not all glamorous. Like it, some days you could be selling peanut butter, or you could be selling baked beans, because at the end of the day it's a consumer product, and you get kind of wrapped up in a number. It's but saying that, it's still an awesome product. You know, yeah, of and, and you never lose sight of the fact that it's in an incredible industry that you're in. But uh, it's an industry, it's business, you know. When, when you say wrapped up in a number, um, do you mean in terms of like, I guess, quotas and those sort of things and, you know, kind of goals and benchmarks that you're working towards? And yeah, look, is if, that what you mean? If you go back to those days when I was, you know, I was really deep into the, the sales part of, say, AussieSoft, we were releasing, I don't know, 40, 50 products a month. Yeah. You know, and that, that, that's because we represented so many companies. You know, it was IDOS, Codemasters, Sega, Konami, um, Mindscape, um, EA back in those days. Um, so there's just so much coming at you that at, at some point it just felt like it was just something else to ship. And I guess, does that get, I mean, these days we think about kind of the scene these days, especially even in the AAA, like everyone kind of owns their own lane for the most part. And yes, then everything comes through, whether it's a, a PC platform like a Steam or a, or a GOG or whatever it happens to be, an Epic Game Store, or it's the consoles for the most part. And it's, it's a little bit simpler, I guess, in that sense these days. But when you're kind of this catch-all umbrella for a, for a long period there, is your head spinning with the number of, I guess, all of these companies have their own independent agendas they do and you know each one of them is driving you to sell their product you know you have competing competing products you know you got colin mccray rally over here you've got you know a similar rally game from someone else that you're trying to sell um and we didn't have an eb you know so you're trying to drive all this stuff didn't have jb to start with so you're trying to drive all this stuff through mass merchants who really don't care don't care about a game it's just a skew you know it just needs to get in the door and out the door and you know and they take their profit from it yeah, and you've got to get the right amount of stock turns. So that's yeah, yeah, certainly a really interesting one, especially yeah, given how I guess simplistic the scene was in that sense. As you say, you know, Aussie Soft and Nintendo, and so you're feeling so much through uh, through that lens that you've kind of got, I guess, your your own company wide agendas, but then the agendas of everyone else that you're then representing that will inevitably conflict with each other at different points. Oh, so, for sure. And you know, um, you try to put up Chinese walls and. You know, separate sales teams and separate marketing teams, but at the end of the day, you know, you're representing probably eighty percent of the market at that point. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of it's very hard, very hard to keep these things quiet from one another as much as yeah, you possibly it is. It is. as much as you possibly might try. Um, and so, obviously, I mean, that, I'm sure that's incredibly valuable experience still. That as we kind of work through the the journey over the years, and I mean, we've touched on Hasbro, and and then obviously all of the the various companies that you represent along the way there, and where we found ourselves at this point where you um, became the CEO of just this little-known entity within the, the Australian game scene known as the IGEA. So how did we go from there to there? Like from the, How did we make that leap? So it, it was a bit of a stage leap. So the it was back then, there was the IEAA. Back of then. course, yeah, of course. Yeah, so, yeah. 
So it, it was a trade body. And having worked uh, when I was with the commercial director at Atari or Infograms, or whatever we were called back then, um, I was one of the founding board members of IEAA. So I'd been on the board for maybe four, five, six years. So yep. I was quite, quite involved with it. And we'd had a part-time, the first CEO was actually, we shared with the toy industry. So it was yeah, okay. the toy industry CEO was also the games industry CEO. Then they put on a, a part-time CEO solely focused on, on IEAA. Um, and at that stage, I had, I'd been made redundant from um, Infograms yep. after all the mergers. Um, I did maybe 12 months um, looking after the Xbox product um, with Ingram and then that folded up. And so at that stage, I was still involved with the board of IGA and they said, well, look, you're out of a job. Do you want to come do this job? Do you want to be the, do you want to be our first full-time CEO? Do it for a year. See and, what you think. You know, kind of then go get a real job. Um, so yeah. And yet here we are. <laughs> and here we are, you know, um, a name change later and you know, yeah. So I guess certainly one of those fascinating things just based on the story so far is there's a little bit of a trend there in terms of, you know, I guess through inopportune circumstances in terms of job losses and those sort of things that other opportunities have, oh, maybe I'm being a little bit too casual when I say, you know, kind of fall in your lap, but obviously with, with circumstances where you found yourself out with Ingram and, and, yeah. and prior opportunities there that someone has potentially recognized something in you from having worked with you over the journey or been aware of, been aware of your output to have gone, well, you know, I think this guy's going to be a, a good fit for what we're trying to achieve here. Yeah, I think look, one of the things I guess that I, I work hard on is relationships. Yes. And, and I guess, you know, when you say, you know, well, that was good luck, you went from this to this, I guess it's when, you know, opportunity meets, you know, preparedness, Effort. you know? Yeah. So, you know, an opportunity is there. If you have long-term relationships and you're right, people go, you know, do you want to give this gig a go? So I've been really lucky that, I don't even remember, it's probably been 40, 30 years since I've had a resume. So, yep. you know, which is kind of a nice thing. Yeah, to, I guess, yeah, the, the reputation, I guess, in a lot of way preceding you and that, that kind of certainly helps when when um, circumstances kind of fall the way they did over the, over the journey. And as, you know, as in your time within the within the IGA and, and obviously different um, names over the, over the journey as well, there's been a lot of change throughout the, the local industry. I certainly, I mean, we're obviously talking about kind of 2007, that window there. So it wasn't long later that the... Uh, we kind of saw a lot of impacts from the global financial crisis hit the yep. local scene, and so what? What was that like? As you've, you know, you're still fairly new in the grand scheme of things in this role, and the forces beyond your control are starting to really have a severe impact on what the local scene looked like. They are, and look, I guess I've got to have a look at you know what I, I, the AA or IGA was doing back then is we were largely representing publishers and distributors. Yeah, and the 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 issues that were around the market. You know, that we were dealing with them was kind of simple well simple as in number you know copyright classification that were the kind of the two big things but there was a separate game developers association so i think that's you know that's where the pain was getting felt the most you know the you know that part of the business was hit hard by the global financial crisis yeah at the same time we saw the advent of you know of consoles and you know the uplift i guess from the from the iga membership because that's that stage was still quite separate to the game developers and developers and publishers back then there, there was just a mile between them there was just no there was no bridge joining the two it was quite quite an i guess 
hostile relationship between the two back then. I guess what did you you would have obviously been present for for several of these you know you know passings and meetings and those sort of things. And so what I guess what was it that made these these interactions as hostile as they were? I think back then you know if you look if you look what happened in Australia there, there were you know Sega was here and Take Two and a bunch. So the publishers packed up and went home and just left a bit of disaster in Australia. Um, but then you still got their products being shipped into Australia and you got this trade association where I work still going famously along selling these great products. You know, these companies are making great money in spite of the fact that there was a whole devastation of the Left behind them. scene. So yeah, you're not going to bring those two together quite easily. Yeah, there's there's certainly a lot of hurt uh, hurt individuals, hurt yeah. companies, and and you know you don't necessarily blame anyone for that either. So, um, I guess I presume for you, for yourself and many others though there was I I guess everyone wants to live in a harmonious sort of environment. So, what did you recognise potentially needed to be done over years? And it was ne- it was never necessarily going to be a quick and easy process. Yeah. And nor would you expect it to be, I'm sure. But like, what what did you kind of recognise that time was potentially necessary? to bring these disparate bodies and some of which were hurting quite significantly together again? So a lot of it was around how industry started to mature. And, you know, it was the advent of mobile. You know, there was this democratisation of of who could make a video game. And all of a sudden, the issues that, for example, publishers faced, developers were now starting to face them. Yes. because the number of issues we're dealing with was starting to move beyond just copyright and classification. Um, then we also saw this blurring of who, who, who is a developer, who is a publisher. We have developers, a surprise attack, turning into a publisher. Yep. Who, who, where do they sit in the big scheme of things? You had Fire Monkeys, you know, come out of the, the, the purchase of from EA, yeah. who now... It was an EA studio in Australia. So you got this big nasty publisher that owns a local developer employing lots of people that merged two companies. So it was it was this mixing pot of of no longer this delineation between we are the creative people and we are the you know, we're the top end of town bleeding you dry, making you work. The suits. Yeah. Um, and that's where the opportunity presented itself to start saying to the wider industry and in this case, it was the Game Developers Association saying, them, okay, how do we now work together? What do we do as a, as a combined force? We don't have to join, but how do we work collaboratively to ensure that we're representing the whole industry? But of course, in time, there, there was a bit of a joining there in terms of like GDAA resources, for example, um, kind of falling under the IGA umbrella, things yep. like GCAP, of course. Um, lots of lots of things you know have changed, and obviously it's quite a few years from that period that we we're first talking about to to even when when that um, I guess partnership crystallised. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I guess there has been a lot that's changed over that time, and it's uh, I guess a credit to you and all parties involved really that have been able to I guess mend you know mend some bro- uh, some wounds as well, but um, form what has become i guess and also respond to the way that the industry has changed so significantly as you touched on to build what has become a really an amazing local scene yeah look the local scene is amazing and you know an amazing scene deserves a strong um trade association to to represent them you know we had a the great game Developers association had an awesome board who worked hard with with the igea board um 
to bring the two organisations together to work through what what it would look like, you know, what is in the best interest of of the industry, what's in the best interest of the members, and you know, you've gone from you know, IGEA with maybe 30, 40 members and the Game Developers Association with you know maybe 20, 30 members. I don't know what it was to a, an association now where we've got about 140 members, uh, but one where you know now we're not always knocking on the door of, of politicians and policymakers. You know, they're knocking on our door. Which you is know? fantastic. Yeah. You know, it's um, great when you get emails going, oh, uh, can we get a ticket to um, to Melbourne International Games Week? Can we get a, a ticket to GCAP? You know, um, can, we, can, we, can we bring the arts minister into a studio somewhere, please? You know, we want to show them around. So it's, it's really, we've really changed, I guess, the, the relationship we've got. Um, with policymakers, yeah, it has been really interesting. I guess looking on through a media lens, but also even a consumer's one, seeing the presence of of politicians and and I guess bodies that you didn't necessarily associate with the video game scene starting to feature more and more. I certainly think about just waltzing through the the PAX show floor last year, and all of a sudden I'm seeing Julian from Massive Monster there, and and yep. uh, you know, a few cameras set up, and I had to kind of double take for a moment to before I recognised what what was going on and these sort of things are starting to pop up more and more frequently. And it's fantastic to see that kind of growth and um, understanding also come from, from both sides over recent years. But um, obviously there, there is the political side of things and, and working with those bodies as well. And I guess one of the, the big things that a lot of people listening will recall from what the IG, uh, from what you and, and the team have done over the years related to the R18 rating that was introduced, uh, was that yeah. about a decade ago now? It was, thereabouts? Yeah. 2012 2013 yep yep it was 20 it was yeah it was january 2013 that's um it's that crazy was, to think yeah it's, yeah and that was like a, a like a 10-year battle that, that yeah was, it certainly was waging for a long time a long haul, yeah that was a lot of yeah and so what, what did that look like because a lot of people will you know they would have read their news articles or whatever the case was when when um policies changed and the and the rating was established but what was that like for you as things developed over those years? Because it's not it's not a simple process for sure, um, and there's a bit of push and pull and and you know agreements and you know checks and balances and all those sorts of different things that all factor into this stuff. So what did that actually look like as you're trying to navigate your way through this space? So it had it had a lot of moving parts to it. So one of the big ones was and and you know hopefully you know you and and the people listening. Uh, are aware of our um, Australia Plays research or digital Australia yep. research. The genesis of that, and we're going back uh, 18 years and 10 iterations, the genesis of that was um, dispelling the myths about who video game players are. Yes. Because the, the first argument was, why do you need an R18 when kids. people play video games are kids? So we needed to first off address that and, and prove that, you know, people who play video games aren't kids you know back back then the average age of a game was 24 um so that's the first bit of research we had to do and you, and you just couldn't do it over one set of research it needed to be multiple data sets yeah so you know three sets of research you know that's four years five years you know just to kind of get that embedded down you had an environment where you know any politician you spoke to and pretty much any advisor you spoke to um, had never played a video game. So there was a big cultural gap. Um, we had 
a system that said that every state and territory had to agree to a change before you could have an R18. So you're not convincing one government. You're, you're convincing, convincing all of them. Eight, but you had to convince them all at the same time. And now if you can think about eight governments, how and everyone goes to an election every three to four years, you may get everything nicely stitched up in, uh, in Perth, in WA, but then by the time we get to the SCAG meeting, there's a new government. Yeah. Over there. Yeah. And then by the time the next one, New South Wales has gone to an election. So, you know, you have that sort of... It's a whole new party and a whole new group of people that you've yeah. got to win over, essentially. And then you've got a guy in um, in South Australia, Atkinson, who was the Attorney General. He just said, you know, so long as I'm in this job, I'll ne- there'll never be an R18. I'll never I vote recall. for it. I do recall. He, he wouldn't... He wouldn't um, he wouldn't meet with us. He wouldn't let his people meet with us. And at one stage he said, because he was dealing with bikey, there was a bikey legislation going on. And right. at one stage he says, he said he was more afraid of the Curry's gang, and my people, than he was of bikies. The bikies. Yeah. He, <laughs> he thought we were going to attack him because he wouldn't have an R18. Um, so well, I mean, you've got that real mobster look about you. I do, don't <laughs> I, right? Yeah, five foot seven of me, right? Um, and then we also, you know, so that's, that's the political side. But then we also had this issue with, with gamers. And um, and there was lots of, again, we're, we're talking about the advent of Facebook and people start making comments and talking to people. And um, is there a language thing on this? No, topic? you can say whatever you like. All right. So, so we're, we're getting these sort of messages going, you know, someone posts up me like, you know, fuck you, Atkinson, we're going to kill you yeah. or, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's and not it, helping, is it? It wasn't. And, <laughs> There was a young guy set up a website. Um, um, oh God, I'll think of the name in a minute. Um, his name's Aaron. And we kind of saw his sorry, Facebook page and he was taking this really sensible approach to um, to video games. It's a bit um, shocking sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah. So, but we're watching his followers go from like 100 to 400 to 1,000 to 8,000. So we reached out to him and said, hey, dude, can you talk to your, to your followers about how we speak to government, how we speak about video games and how we get respect as, a, as consumers? Um, and, it's, and it's through a lot of the work that he did um, that, that we started to change the narrative around um, about how we speak about video games as consumers. Yeah, that's it's huge, and I mean, it's it's still something these days. Now, thankfully, the the rating got through, and I think there's more that we can kind of wade into around that process. But it like the the way that yeah, anyone, everyone talks about video games. The dialogue is still even today. It's still one of those really tricky topics. So I I work professionally as a teacher, and so I I work with a lot of teenagers who um don't necessarily speak in the most respectful, courteous ways at best of times, and then because they know that I working, you know, I do some working games media and I have podcasts and I do videos about games and those sort of things that you know they'll start talking about their various gaming experiences too and mm-hmm. oh some of the stuff you end up hearing like anyone like how do we get out of this sometimes yeah um and you know I guess the reflection I have when I when I think about the conversations I hear from those students is that there's a there's a maturity thing that that will come with time and and you like to hope that there's a a reflective point where they go oh hang on I don't need to carry and conduct myself that way. But the, the problem is that I think you're also highlighting is that it wasn't exclusive to kids. No. And so no. breaking down breaking down that 
the way that people were speaking is hugely important. Yeah, and and certainly you know we had we had great and it was called Grow Up Australia actually the the Facebook page. Um, yeah, so again, it, it's it's hundreds of moving parts. You know, it's research, it's talking to politicians, it's doing demonstrations at Parliament House. You know, setting up video games at Parliament House. It's about trying to find trying to find the evangelist somewhere um, in Parliament House that that you can take out and show. What a video game looks like. Um, break down stereotypes. Break down stereotypes, and and eventually, eventually we got there. You know, RAT came, and the world didn't end. Surprise! Surprise! <laughs> and surprise! Surprise! You know, we still have a classification scheme that's not fit for, not fit for purpose, like we did back then. Um, but it's certainly better than what it was. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess uh, one of the things I reflected upon at the time and when I was, I was pulling everything together for the show, I think I recall it might have been like Ninja Gaiden 3, Razor's Edge, I think might have been the first game that actually came through that process. The yep. Wii U, funnily enough, and you know most people didn't necessarily think of Nintendo and having games such as that, but they were the first in this particular instance. It was third it was, party, so but of course... Yeah, I've got that I've got that box up in and the rating in, uh, in a frame in my office. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Um, but you, you've obviously touched on the fact that yeah, it's still, still not a hundred percent like fit for purpose. So I guess how do, like these days, and it's it's been a decade as we as we've touched on since since the R eighteen was established. But obviously we still hear stories every now and then about games that are either refuse classification or there's um, alterations that are I guess um, suggested, recommended, unless uh, at the risk of the game they're not being refused. Yeah. Are these the sort of things that you're touching on in terms of um, the process that we've got? at the moment that's still yeah. potentially flawed yeah, and we're still having those conversations you know a couple of years ago now with the last government they had the stevens review who looked in looked into classification and made a whole bunch of recommendations and actually just this week the current government have have, have started making a few changes based on based on that but part of that part of the underlying premise of the, of the classification scheme is it's it's about community standards yeah um and We've moved a long way in the last ten years around around what is acceptable and what is not. And you know, I had some candid conversations with some people from classification only last week. You know, they were looking back at games that were banned, or maybe R eighteen, or even MA, and thinking, "Wow, if we did them, if we reclassified them today, they totally they, different perspective. Totally different perspective. It's different environment, different lens, different tolerance. You know, just people understanding the medium. You know, a, a lot differently than they used to." Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I think of some of the sorts, of, and I'm you know, scratching my brain a little bit now for some of those that refused classification back in the day, but I think of something like a Dark Sector, I think was a name that ring, uh, rings a bell, was one of those in the early days that was refused. I think about, um, I guess, alterations to the way 4 games have had to use their, let's say, medication. <laughs> with it, with the, some of the different sims and those sorts there's, there's been a range of different i guess stories that have bubbled up over the years and so as you're highlighting there it's still it's a work in progress but getting that r18 in the first place was a huge milestone and a massive congratulations to you and the team um for achieving that in the first place yeah look it was it, it's probably one of the two biggest things that we've done um and it was certainly you know there's a lot of people who did a lot of work and who deserve a big pat on the back for that. It's it's certainly it's a team effort. Yeah. And there was a huge team of people over the, over those years who worked on it. Now, you obviously just touched on one of the two and there's a few different things I've got listed here in terms of some really significant achievements over the years, but what would be that second one in your eyes? 
Uh, I think the digital games tax offset. Yep. Which we've just got. And look, yep, you're right. There's a bunch of stuff in the middle, but as far as as far as another project that's taken ten years and lots of moving parts, um, yeah, that's that's definitely that's definitely up there. And so, I guess, what did that look like? Was it was it as big of a challenge as the R18, or I guess a different different kind of challenge? It it was a different kind of challenge. It it was probably as big, and it probably went on for as long. But it, but no one would have known. Like it wasn't one of those issues that mobilised consumers. Yeah. So you know. It wasn't you, you wouldn't be reading about it in blogs and you wouldn't be seeing it in you know in in various games publications of journals some sort, yeah. and publications it was, it was something that we were we were working on just continually and it was very developer facing yeah yeah and you know it there was a lot of serendipity in that as well there was a lot of relationships that you just you pulled in um there was lots and lots of lobbying lots of yep. knocking on doors Lots of wing hearts. Yeah, lots of around video games as as a creative industry and as art and you know, and kind of lined it up similarly to, to music and film. Yeah. And then we got to a stage where we said, you know what, this this argument is is probably not gonna work. Um, the government of the day didn't care about that. You know, we had an arts minister that if it wasn't ballet or theatre, then it wasn't Wasn't art, interested. Wasn't interested at all. Um, what, the, what the last government was interested in was jobs and uh, economy. So then we switched our argument and our research to saying, okay, so what's the economic value of, of this industry? And what does it mean to Australia as far as a smart workforce, as far as transferable skills, the economy, um, attracting businesses, and then that's where we started to build our case around it. Just got to know your audience, right? Hundred <laughs> percent. It's like anything else, you know. If you got a podcast, it's no good you trying to attract a whole bunch of people who'd rather be out racing cars and playing games. So you're absolutely exactly. right. You got to know your audience, and so we did change our narrative. There was a bit of luck that came. You know, we stumbled over the right people. Um, we did find that every time we took a politician um, into a game studio. We converted them. Fantastic. What, what, I guess what was their feedback when they would have these experiences where they walk through a studio, whatever the studio might happen to be? What were they? What were they noticing? What were they observing? What were they saying? The, the technology. Yep. That these rooms were full of people working. That they were, you know, that it was a business that was generating income. That we talked. We we often talked about transferable skills. And if we tried to take them somewhere, tried to do a, like a couple of visits. If we if we went to someone who was really like hardcore games so if we're talking to um uh riot for example yep. then we might try to take them to chaos theory games to, yeah, to say okay look at this skill set but look how we use this skill set over here as well what are the trends you know how is it helping education and industry and and medicine and all the other things that that games um the learning around creating games is good for and um very quickly one over i gather yeah, and then and you know, and you have your narrative while you're walking around and saying, you know, do you know the size of the industry? Two hundred and fifty billion dollars, and they're like, oh, well, how big is that? So we'll take the film industry, take the music industry, add them together, bigger. And then you say to them, you know, we got point zero five percent of that wealth in this country, you know, from a from a creative point of view, and they're like, how can that be? 
how, how can Australia have 1,700 game developers and Canada's got 17,000? So we'd ask them those questions. Um, and just over a period of time, you know, you you start to spread that word right through both sides of parliament because you can't have the conversation. Yeah, you've got to win both. And, and as it was, we had an election in the middle and we swapped governments, which usually kills anything like this. But we were lucky we had, we were bringing both governments along. I remember a whole number of years ago, you know, when we first, the government had an inquiry into video games. We're in Brisbane and um, there was this old centre at the end of the table who pretty much was asleep all the time. And the guys from, um, sorry, we we're, were talking about Fruit Ninja. Oh, yeah. and, and they said, oh, you know, we've, we've sold, you know, in all the iterations, a, a billion copies. And the senator kind of nearly fell out of his chair. He goes, a million? A million? How could you sell a million? <laughs> and Sorry, add a few more zeros. The from Halfbridge said, I'm sorry, Senator. We said a billion, you know, and he, he, he was our convert from there. He's like, what the hell? Like, um, and he was... He was someone we never would have expected to get on as, as an advocate. And from then on, any time we went to Canberra, he would have a conversation with us. He'd take us around to see his, you know, his other national friends. Um, and it's Canberra, that's how it works. Yeah, of course, yeah. And I mean, look, it, it's it, as we've touched on, it's, you know, different things are speaking to different people and some people's dollars and cents. Some people want to see you know, numbers in different, different contexts. Some people just need to, as you've touched on as well, walk through a space and see what it actually looks and feels like to be yep. in, in a studio and um i mean again a massive congratulations to you and the team on, on all that you achieved there and we we hear often and plenty plenty of guests that i've had on this show over the years speak of the different tax offsets and things that they've received by working in whatever their particular space might be mm -hmm. and how impactful it has been on their ability to stay at home for starters and stay stay in australia yeah, and yeah. and develop the games they love and you know, I think regularly it's discussed the number of the number of games that are created here. Like it feels like we are batting so far out of our league in terms of games that kind of get bandied around in that game of the year conversation, but also games that even if they're not quite in that one, that are still high, ultra high quality and doing some amazing things, revolutionary ideas. You think? I mean, we think obviously about your Hollow Knights and your Untitled Goose games right up there on the top end, but there's there's so many incredible games that are coming out of this space um, as well that. People are jumping all over. We see, you know, your Team 17's picking up, moving out, and working with SMG. Yeah. Uh, there, there's amazing different things that are going on um, in this space, and it's it's amazing. And uh, a lot of that is, I think, in part because people have been able to stay in this country and, and work here because it's viable to do so. And so, yeah. a massive again, a massive congratulations to yourself and the team for, for what you've achieved in that space so far. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and look, and the great thing about when we work in the DGTO and we could see it coming is then the states all started to get hungry. You know, they started to say, well, if we're going to if we're going to have a digital games tax officer, we need to get smarter. Yeah. And so it was always Victoria. But, you know, now every state has has got a great offering for their local development um, cohorts. Yeah. And look, I'll admit, like, as, as a Victorian, I was always very, very proud and a little bit nose in the air of what was going on. But it's been amazing over the years. And again, kind of referring to past guests who've come on the show to hear them talking about what's going on in the Gold Coast or what's going on in here, what's going on there. And it's been really really amazing and, and exciting because look yeah i'm maybe painting with too broad a brush but you know victoria had done obviously some amazing things and was and was kind of carrying the torch but it feels like more and more hands are grabbing a hold of that torch and carrying it with victoria these days and it's it's amazing yeah. what are you what are you personally seeing from some of these other states 
and and obviously um, federal government as well, that has been so impactful in this growth across other portions of Australia as well. Yeah, so, you know, we've got the DDTO and then on the back of that, Screen Australia have now got some more funding. So at a federal level, which is fantastic, and they're going to make some announcements soon about how that's going to be spent. That that That's going to plug some other holes. Yep. Um, but then you just look around the states and, you know, it's funny, you know, I was in a room with a lot of the states, we're having a bit of a meeting and I said, ah, it's great to see you all competing against each other, pitting yourself against each other. And they were kind of like, you know what, we're not, you know, we, we each have our own offering and clearly we want our state to be the best, but it's, it's about, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. I was hoping you'd say that. That's fantastic to you. And we see that across the screen agencies because they're so collaborative, you know, um, they're so supportive of us that we get a lot of support from them. The industry gets a lot of support. Um, but I think it's reflective of the industry. I've, you know, I've been in this industry for a long time, but I've got friends across a lot of tech industries. Nothing's like this industry. Yep. You know, you don't have the collaboration that you have in, in, in a lot of the tech. Yeah. You know, if someone, and you know, we saw it when we had the arcade, you know, you've got competitors sitting room by room, but if someone's got a problem, it's like, well, I'll just go next door and ask Fred how to fix that problem. You know, you, you, you've got companies who get very successful and it, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy to make money, but when you, when you crack that nut, there's a lot of money to be made. Those people who are generous spreading that wealth around to other studios, investing in stuff, people giving up their time, their energy, their money, their smarts to help the industry. And, and I, that's what I love about the industry. You know, that, that's, that's what's contagious about it. Um, yeah. And when we speak to the screen industry, I mean, I don't put words into the screen agency's mouths, but they often say to us, you know, we just, we, it's just so different to dealing with film. Yeah, you know, it's such very a, different beast. Such a nice group to deal with. No, that's, that's awesome. And, and certainly I, I, I guess I, again, this may be popping the, the teacher cap on, but those, those ripples are being felt because I feel like I'm seeing more and more students that I teach these days. And some of them as you know, young at 13, thereabouts when they're first coming into my, my high school orbit, but more and more of them starting to talk about, you know, like I want to get into games and they know more about what's available to them here, mm-hmm. which is something, you know, if I cast my eye back, say a decade, yeah, obviously some of these things were starting to come come into place, and you know there were certainly some things that were already established as well. But I don't think the knowledge and the education was there as well. And as governments take it more seriously, as more of these bodies get established, as as more developers are having successes, as you say, you know they're cracking that nut. It's becoming clearer to to people coming through that this is a viable thing. You you love games. You don't have to give up on that that love of them and and enjoy it purely as a consumer. Not that there's anything wrong with that, of course. Mm-hmm. But um that you can actually pursue this thing if you want. And it, it's amazing to see. Um, I've, I've been very fortunate and, and massive shout out to Felicia, who's been, um, that will help f- facilitate this conversation for the two of us in the first place. But I've been chatting to a range of the, the recent smart program recipients. Um, yeah. And I mean, it's, exciting it's, that? it's been awesome program and, awesome, and yeah. like really amazing to hear again. I mean, for the longest time it was Victoria, 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 but now I'm hearing of different voices from different States and, you know whatever it is they might be doing I mean, some of them are obviously here at the moment for to work with the likes of samurai punk and summerfall and several others but mm-hmm. um it's it's amazing hearing these stories from the other states and what is going on and how things are building up it's huge there's there's an excitement around this this scene at the moment that is 
really infectious. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, we've we've had at least two states come to us and say, "Okay, talk to us about this smart program. How do we do this? How do we how do we replicate? How do you either how do you replicate it, or how do we replicate it in our state?" That's awesome. Um, which is really exciting. No, that's that's huge. And I guess in your eyes, and I I don't I mean I know you said there's potentially announcements coming down the line, so I don't want to put you in some sort of compromise spot with what you do and don't know. What do you? I guess things are going really really well. Things are heading in a great direction. What do you mm-hmm. feel like is still potentially lacking or missing at the moment, or needs needs a little bit of extra refinement? Uh, look, the the DGTO is is good. Uh, it's not perfect. Yep. So there's a lot of look, there's a whole number of refinements in there, and you know when you know when you go to government, you go with everything you want, and we got a lot of what we want, but there's some significant things there that need changing, which is absolutely fine. It's it's brand new. We need to try it. You know, it's, it's a case of you know suck it and see sometimes. Yep. But there's a bunch of work around there that we'd like to that we'd like to work on it, over, over the coming years. You know, each of the states and territories, there's opportunities there. You know, places like Canberra is doing nothing. Um, you know, how can we, how can we get them going? How can we get them going? The NT are just starting, you know, how do we help them? You know, WA is really exciting at the moment. They're kind of just, wait, you know, I'd say waking up in a pejorative sense, but they're yeah, kind yeah, of really starting to embrace games. So Victoria have just upped the ante again, um, only over the last week, the, the minister, you know, made an announcement. So there's just lots of excitement. What, what I'm looking forward to is getting some big studios here. Yep. You know, the likes of, and I'm not saying I know anything like a, a, a Ubisoft or something like that, you know, a, two or three of those to set up in Australia and really set the scene on fire. Yeah, because obviously we have the likes of, say, a Sledgehammer, for example, on, the, on an Activision yep. or potentially soon Microsoft side. Um, but, uh, and, we, you know, we've, we've touched on Fire Monkeys, but yeah, I guess there's still a big opportunity there for some of those other big names to to make their way across or, or return in some in some instances as well. Obviously after yeah. after the GFC from from all those years ago, so yeah, certainly some opportunity in that. But it is fantastic to see um, that all states are are getting there um, at the very least. And the other thing is, you know, is not just seeing these you know AAAs coming in, but companies local, something like Playside. You know, they've opened yep. a second. They've opened a second um, studio. You know, great. they opened their third, and you know, and they're running out of space again. And you know, keywords have got three offices they're here. Blowing right up. You know, so that's a sort of exciting thing. And particularly if we can get places like, you know, you know, a league. It'd be great to have a second league of geeks office, and you know, it'd be great to have a third or fourth, you know, play side, and and that sort of local, you know, homegrown studios just really burgeoning in this country. I know some of those guys are listening and you've heard it here. We need uh, more studios from, from a lot of you. So <laughs> um, no pressure. Uh, so I'm putting you in a spot here, but obviously right. you've, you've got a, you've got a bit of a look over all that's going on across all the States and all the different scenes and, and a lot of the different games that are likely spinning off of that. Is there anything, and this is now purely a subjective thing, your yeah. personal taste, your interest in games. Is there something that is really speaking to you? I'm not going to go as far as say a favorite child. That is harsh. It is harsh. But is there um, is there something that's just I guess really ticking all the right boxes for you and the sorts of games that you enjoy historically? That that that's a tough one. Um, I'm I'm going to kind of go the opposite direction here. Okay. So games I, games I probably won't play. So I, I do some other work outside of IGA. Some, yes. Some volunteer work, and 
one one of the things I'm seeing is is a real um, need for games that I guess we're calling cozy games. Yes. And the the place that they've got in society as as a healing and connecting medium. Um, and I'm really excited about that. But at the same time, you did you did preface that with you know games that you may not necessarily. So it's not necessarily. Am I interpreting that it's not quite necessarily your thing, but it's obviously hugely important. You want to see more of it. It's it's really important to me that there's there's more of that. Um, yeah. On because that whole side of what I do is really important to me. So yeah, even though you know, I, I, I I would still play those games. Um, um, but yeah, for for transparency, probably in the last four or five years, I've had five hand operations. So I, I just... Limits I just, things a little bit. I just don't play. I can't play anymore. I don't have any no, feeling in my enough. thumb, so I can't use the controller. And Completely I just understand. Head bucks, dexterity. So I just watch people now, you know. And there's um, so much that can be derived from that too. There is. And, you know, when you've got four kids, you just never get to use the machine anyhow. So, Well, um, uh, yeah, that... Yeah, I, I guess I should get my head around that idea in the future too. Yeah, I? yeah, give up. Give up. <laughs> there's, there's a point that's got to come where I either bunker down in here and never get seen again, or I've got to give up. Never, so. never let them play again. <laughs> okay, okay, right. I, we it. haven't we haven't done that yet, so I guess I've still got the opportunity to cut the cord on them. Um, well, before we, before we wrap things up, we are getting close to the end there. I'm just going to quickly throw to myself for our Patreon shout out tier. I'll do that now, and we'll get straight back to it. And so it's at this point in the show that I want to make sure that I shout out all of the amazing patrons at the show shout out tier on patreon.com slash dev diary podcast. Those people are supporting at the top tier in the show, gets them this shout out, and I'm eternally thankful because you are helping fuel the fire that is dev diary now and into the future. And so with this newest episode, I want to shout out Scott Makes Games and my mum, Julie James, thank you very much for supporting this show and let's get back to it. All right. So it's been fantastic to chat so far and learn about this journey. It's been, there's some incredible things that you've been a part of and a really important figure in. Is there anyone that you've worked with or that you've looked at from afar that has really inspired you in the way you've gone about what you've done so far? Within the industry or outside? Within or outside. Whatever there's, I guess, you know, inspiration comes from a host of different places, so. Hundreds of people. Hundreds of people. You know, I've been really, really lucky uh, that I've worked with, like, so many good people, so many smart people. Um, and I've had, I've been super lucky that I've had smart people work for me. That helps. You know, I, you know they make me look good. You know, I... I don't get to be lucky enough to do a podcast like this without surrounding myself with some really super smart, energetic, dynamic people. Yeah. Um, and there's a whole stream of them. And and I'd like to call some of them out, but then I'm going to miss somebody. You're leaving others behind. So I completely respect that. But one one thing, I'll, I'll go back before this job, and I remember when I was quite young, starting off in in the industry, and I'd kind of worked really hard to pull a help pull a conference together. And I came to work um, after the conference and sitting on my desk was a bottle of Quantro and a handwritten note from the, the managing director. It was a guy, I never saw him. Like he, this is the old days where everyone had an office and a secretary and you know, all that. So he, he'd seen how hard, what, what an effort I'd put in. Made an effort to find 
a phone number to ring. He ended up getting onto my girlfriend at the time to find out what right. my favorite drink, like what my favorite drink that I can't afford is, because I was like twenty. Yeah. And so, and and he hand wrote a note thanking me, and put it with the bottle of Quattro. Uh, I still have the note. Um, That's awesome. And it was one of my biggest learnings um, moving forward as, as I guess, as a leader of a business is about um, noticing everything or everyone, making sure you making sure you know who's contributing, and then finding out how you thank them. No, that's that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so there are so huge. many moving pieces, as you as you've touched on. You know, you've made, obviously there's hundreds that you've cited there yourself. There's a lot of moving pieces and a lot of people doing a lot of heavy lifting at times. Yeah. And yeah, to be able to recognize what people are doing is is hugely important. Yeah, and you know, and that's part of that. I think earlier I spoke about relationships. Yeah. And, you know, and that's and that's part of that. It's about uh, that awareness of of you know who's supporting you, who's who's carrying the load, and you know who's who's digging in. And I guess uh, that response perhaps links in nice and seamlessly to my next question, which is. Uh, what have been some of the most valuable lessons or experiences you've had along the road so far? Ooh, um, don't give up. Yep. Um, that there's more than one way to skin a cat. Um, you know, R18 taught me that. Uh, look, here's, here's the truth. During the R18 thing, we threw our hands, hands up there and went, you know what? It's done. That's it. We're done. We're done. We're, we've wasted a fortune, blah, blah, blah. And it was about a week or so later, some politician rings us and says, can you come and talk to me about this R18? Because I'm really interested in it. So, and it took us down another another pathway. <coughs> Excuse me. No, that's so huge. I guess, yeah, I guess that, you know, there, there's lots of ways to do things. Um, and that, yeah, I, I guess that's my biggest learning. Well, it's that same hard work that we were talking about before that, that everyone puts in along the way that will... Be rewarding at the end of the day. Yeah, and and at, at sometimes it's sometimes it's about micro moments, and sometimes it's about macro moments, and and uh, they're equally as important. Yeah, of course, absolutely. Um, some lighter ones now to to wrap things up. All right. Um, now, usually everyone everyone I'm talking to is really hands on in in the scene in terms of act, act, active development. So this, I guess, you'll be bringing a different perspective to this. Yep. If you could be credited for any game in any capacity, what game would you have loved to have been able to work on? Oh, um, hmm, probably, probably two that I released. Yeah, helped release Tomb Raider. Yes, and Under a Killing Moon. Okay, right. A couple of fantastic picks there. I guess what is it about the both of those? I think especially Tomb Raider, a lot of people will know a lot more about Tomb Raider specifically. But um, what is it about Under, both of those games? Under Killing Moon was was kind of the first game like it that came out. I think, and it was on like six CDs or something. It was crazy. It was like yep. mental. But it was just new. It was it was different. And and I'm just I'm nostalgic about it. I can, I, I I can sit and hear, I can sit and close my eyes and see where I was where I saw the where I first saw it before it was released and swapping swapping cds in an old mac um very cool so it's very nostalgic um yeah definitely tomb raider because i was part of a team that released it in australia the first tomb raider and and hugely impactful that game of course (laughs) and yeah it's i love the fact 
that when Tomb Raider came out, it had a you know a female protagonist, which was obviously not nearly done enough at the time, and and honestly, still to this day, there's you know the things have improved significantly, but we're still yeah. a ways off. Yeah, look, I remember Jeff Brand who who does the um, Australia Plays research and digital Australia research was you know he was saying the research he did around that time where you know the the there was more robots in games than women. You know, and then all of a sudden we, we had Tomb Raider. And and I know part of that was it was you know, she was a little bit of sexualization and those sexualization, things. Sexualization, yeah. but it, whether that's right or wrong, it, it allowed us to have a female protagonist. And so yeah, I think cracked the door open in a way that allowed more to come in ways that were perhaps not as heavily sexualized as well. Correct. And yeah, and I, and you know, I don't I don't I'm not kind of rewarding the oversexualization of it but there was there was a part of it that was to me was at least here we are yeah no that's that, very good point uh conversely if you could go back and replay any game now i know obviously you mentioned the the thumb and some of the some of the challenges there but if you could go back and replay any game strike it from your memory and get to experience it all over again what game would you love to have that moment with all over again <laughs> it's going to show my age so the, the two there was two games that were just for my, for the time was so great it was uh, Aladdin and Jungle Book yeah um, were just sensational games at the time that that old Super Nintendo era Sega yeah yeah, I, was, era, yeah. Then I, I did I did work for Sega then so let's not say Nintendo right it was sorry it was, yeah good point it was on the Mega Drive I yeah, think it was the Mega Drive. So. That would that would sound right because yeah, um, I, I certainly recall going to some friends' places back in the day and and trying out those games, um, and among several one, others, kind of those Disney licensed yeah. ones through that period as well. And Doom. Oh, and, yeah, that first exactly. experience of Doom. Yeah, um, still incredibly informative for a lot of people. Well, Ron, it's been fantastic to have you on the show and share this journey so far and to learn so much more about. I mean, there's been so much reporting over the years about the, th the things that you and the team have done, but to be able to hear it from the horse's mouth and get that little bit of extra context as well has been huge for myself and I'm sure for everyone listening as well today. So thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thanks, Paul. It's been great. If those listening want to, I guess, tune in a little bit to what you're what you're up to, whether it's through social media or um, IGA platforms, where should people go? Uh, the website, IGA.net. Uh, we're on, I was say Twitter. Is it called Twitter anymore? We're on X, the old. So, we're on, uh, yeah. what, what used to be on what used to be known as Twitter, at at IGEA, and now we're on Instagram. So I think it's at IGEA underscore AU. And obviously, as you've touched on already, lots of huge things to come in the future. Um, um, so lots of things for developers, for consumers to all be excited about. So thank you so much for for coming and sharing all of it. No it's worries, been an absolute pleasure. Much. Listeners, as always, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time. That concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you'd like me to reach out to in an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until our next episode, however, that's been Ron's story. Thank you much for listening, and I'll see you next time.